Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things, when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up and not tearing you down. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you. Rachel, thank you for reading for us. And as we come to the end of our series in 2 Corinthians, do keep your Bibles open at that reading. It's page 1166 in the Pew Bibles if you just closed them. And also, I hope you received on the way in a white handout like this one. It just gives you an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. You might find it helpful if you scribble notes as we go. Well, as we look at God's word together, let me, let me pray for us all. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help this morning. We pray that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. And we pray that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, we ask that the great surgeon of our hearts, the Holy Spirit, would be at work in us to that end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the hardest things about being a parent is knowing when to speak up. Think back to when I was a kid. I used to love things like sausages and chips and ice cream. I I hated spinach and tomatoes and and anything healthy, really. And uh, my poor parents, how do you help a kid who, who loves all the wrong kinds of food to learn to eat the right kinds of food? They could imagine that a, a lifetime of eating only sausages wouldn't end well. But, but, but how do you speak up? Later on in life, as I was um, preparing for my GCSE exams, I remember one particular exam, biology. The night before my exam, I was pretending to revise with my notes on my knee, but I was actually watching the Football World Cup. And boy, did my results um, demonstrate that fact. But my poor parents were watching this whole thing unfold and they knew what would happen. If you don't revise, you won't get the grades. And as parents, it's hard to know when to speak up. You want to maintain the relationship. You love your children and yet you can see them at times making choices that will not pan out well if they persist. There'll be parents here this morning who know that feeling, not just with vegetables and exams, but when it comes to Christian things, many parents here this morning, it's hard to know when to speak up when our children don't want to come on a Sunday morning to church. When there's something the Bible says they don't like and they push against it, when do we speak up? How do we speak up? We want to maintain the relationship, but, it, but it's hard to know what to say when. I think that dilemma is very much at work in our reading in 2 Corinthians as we come to the end of our series. If you look back just before our reading to verse 14 of chapter 12, Paul says this, Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul was the one who first introduced the Corinthians to Jesus. He he was their spiritual father. They are his spiritual children. And he loves them. He's not preaching for their money. He doesn't want their possessions. He wants them. But he's worried. Look forward to verse 20. For I am afraid that when I come... 
I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Sadly, many families, parents, and children can testify that that's that kind of dynamic at work in their lives. Well, here with the Corinthians, they are continuing to live a life at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been seeing how they loved worldly power and status and success and had very little time for the weakness that marked out both Paul as an apostle of Christ and the Lord he followed. And we discover also, verse 21, that they stubbornly persisted in the very sins that Paul had already warned them about back in 1 Corinthians. Do you see at the end of verse 21? Impurity and sexual sin and debauchery. And so this morning, Paul does a difficult thing. He speaks up. He wants to maintain the relationship But he loves the Corinthians too much not to say some really difficult but serious things to them. And as he writes to the Corinthians, I wonder what he would say to us if he was announcing a forthcoming visit. What would he want us to hear that we need to hear? How would he speak up into our lives? This morning we would do well to examine our own hearts as we look at Paul's stern but loving words to the Corinthians. And there may well be some here this morning who are new to Christian things. Well, this morning we get a very clear glimpse into what it means to be a a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're gonna focus particularly on the first 10 verses of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 13. And on the handout you'll see our first point is this, a, a loving warning about the future. Getting ready for family reunions can uh, not always be easy. Uh, Many years ago, my American grandparents decided to hold a reunion for all my wider family, my aunts and uncles and cousins. I think around 40 of us gathered, and the whole thing was very well planned. They issued directions about what to expect and how to prepare well before the reunion. And you can imagine how our hearts sank when we discovered at one point that there had been printed for us Scammon family baseball caps, and Scammon family t-shirts, all matching, all printed out, and we had to wear them throughout the whole reunion together as one happy family. Indeed. Well, here are Paul's instructions to prepare the Corinthians for their upcoming reunion. So verse one, this will be my third visit to you. And then he says, Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's a slightly odd way to introduce your next visit. He is referring to a pattern in the Old Testament law. If an accusation is to be brought against one of God's people, it mustn't be a spurious accusation that someone just makes up off the top of their head. No, it must be well attested to, including two or three different witnesses must all say, yes, that is what happens. And this 
pattern is, is a good thing to protect God's people from being falsely accused. And it's at work in our legal system today that if a claim is brought against someone, there must be witnesses to substantiate, to give evidence. It's a good pattern. And that's the pattern Paul refers to. Why does he mention this legal pattern? Well, the reality is he has this kind of evidence against the Corinthians. It's all stacking up against them. So verse 2 I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. He's talking about a visit he describes back in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. He calls it a, a painful visit. He discovered that the Corinthians were not living as they should, living lives of sin. He had to speak to them honestly about these things. So if you like, that's evidence one, warning one. But then look at verse 2, he continues... I now repeat it, that is the warning, while absent. Here is the second warning, and it's built on, I think, the evidence of Titus, his friend. Remember, Titus had been sent to Corinth. Titus had come back from Corinth to Paul with some good news, yes. But it seems certain that also there was some bad news that Titus had to report back to Paul about what was happening in Corinth. And based on Titus' Witness of the Corinthians, Paul gives his next warning. And so we're seeing here that over a number of years, the Corinthians were were stacking up reasons for the Apostle Paul to be worried about them. Stubborn sins that were public and obvious, that he could see, that Titus could see. And so according to the Old Testament pattern of how to bring an accusation, Paul was saying, well, I've got all the evidence I need against you. And so at the end of verse 2, on my return, I, I will not spare those who have sinned earlier or any others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. The Corinthians had accused Paul of being forceful in his letters, but meek and gentle face to face, unimpressive. And you can imagine them reading 2 Corinthians and saying, oh, come on. Paul writes a lot of rubbish in his letters. When he comes, he's not going to tell us off. He's, he's too weak for that. It's a bit like, I guess, a colleague at off, in the office who um, happily hammers out an angry email, fires it off, and then when you go around to visit them and talk to them face-to-face, they're all like, oh, no, I didn't mean anything. It's, it's all fine. You know, they, they, they change the, the tone. The Corinthians are like, well, that's how Paul works. He'll, he'll write an angry letter, then he'll turn up, and he won't care at all. But this time Paul will act when he comes because he does speak with the authority of Christ. Now the warning that's being implied here is a very similar warning to what happened back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a reference there in the handout. And in that context, Paul, with the power of Christ, acted to cast out an unrepentant Christian from the midst of the church in order for them to repent and be saved. And that is is the threat hanging over the Corinthians this time, back in 2 Corinthians. When Paul comes, he will not spare those who won't repent. He means he will will cast them out of the church community, out of fellowship, using the power of Christ. The Corinthians thought Paul was a weak man, unimpressive, 
But Paul says, don't be fooled. People thought the same about Jesus. Look at verse three. He, Christ, is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerfully at work among you. You might say, really, how? Well, verse four. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. See, when Jesus came into the world the first time, he came in weakness. He took on flesh. He died on a Roman cross in shame. People taunted him, saying he claims to be the Messiah, and yet what kind of Messiah dies on a Roman cross? His life was a failure, they said. But the one who died in shame has been raised to resurrection life. He now sits on a throne of unrivaled power in all glory. And whilst he might have come once in shame, he'll come a second time with ultimate authority and ultimate power to judge the world. And I think Paul's point is that when he comes to Corinth, because he speaks on Christ's behalf, he brings all of Christ's authority and power to bear, the, the, the power of his resurrection life. And so although Paul might seem weak in the world's eyes, he speaks with unbelievable power. He doesn't want to have to use that kind of authority. Look at verse 10 at the end. He says, this is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. My old rugby coach at school used to love letting people know that he was the boss. He used to love shouting and screaming at even the smallest mistakes. It seemed as if he was most himself, most comfortable when he was being harsh. And there are people around, aren't there, like that in the world, in the office place. But not Paul. He loves these dear Corinthians. He, his preferred style is gentleness. He wants to build them up. And so he writes a warning now about his future visits so that when he comes, he might not have to be harsh. Here is a loving warning about the future. Well, what does this all mean for us here at Fullwood? We live 2,000 years later. The Apostle Paul is dead. He's not going to come and visit us for a third time soon. And it's not necessarily true that the, the same sins of Corinth are at work amongst us here at Fullwood. So how should we apply these uh, strong words to our position? There is a loving warning here for us. The Corinthians had grown comfortable with their sin. It's probably at least five years since Paul's first visit. And over those years, there have been various appeals to repent. There have been letters. There have been other visits from Paul's friends. And throughout that whole time, the Corinthians had been stubbornly unwilling to repent over their sins. And perhaps they thought their sin didn't matter. Perhaps they thought Paul wasn't worth listening to. And so here's a challenge for us. I wonder if we at times slip into the same mindset of these Corinthians. We think our own sins don't matter. We think that what Paul says doesn't really matter. Maybe it is in the area of sexual sin. Maybe it is 
gossip, slander. Maybe it's our anger. Maybe it's the speed with which we quarrel with one another. The warning for us is that Paul's third visit is a picture, a foretaste of what it will be like when Christ himself returns in all his resurrection power to judge the world. It will be a a decisive day, a day where sins are accurately and fairly and clearly dealt with. And so we have here a loving warning in the present to help us prepare for that future day. But I, also, I think we also have here a great model for how we should encourage other Christians. Many of us hate conflict. And if we spot a brother or a sister in Christ who is behaving a bit like the Corinthians in this letter, they're stubborn in their sin for, for years. Their fingers are in their ears. They don't care. They won't repent. They won't change. If we are aware of that kind of person around us, the, the easy thing for many of us is to just ignore what we're seeing, to step back. It, it's just too hard to kind of bring it up. There are, I guess, others who like conflict just a little bit too much. Our preferred operating manner is to jump in with guns blazing and to actually when we spot someone, we go, great, I can make a point of them but not because we love them. And so Paul's example of how he pastors the Corinthians like a father and his children in the faith is a great model for us. He neither ignores the sin nor jumps in. He faces the problem lovingly and carefully. Notice how he takes time to get the facts um, correct. He doesn't just assume or uh, uh, jump in without the full picture. And notice also how Paul gives time for repentance. He warns carefully before it's too late. And if we really care about the spiritual condition of others in the church family, we would do well to learn from Paul's loving, patient, yet unflinching approach to the sin of others. I wonder if even this morning there is someone coming to mind as I speak that you know well enough to realize that they might be in danger of being like the Corinthians. Maybe God has placed you in their lives, that maybe you're the one who best knows what's going on. And you've seen it and you thought, I I just won't say anything, it's too hard. I wonder if this morning the application for us is maybe today is the day to say something to them, to warn them. We can see how here, gently, to build them up because we love them, Accurately, not overstating things. A loving warning about the future. Or second on the handouts, a loving exhortation about the present. I guess most of us don't enjoy taking exams. I remember very clearly the day I finished my final engineering exam of my degree, I remember skipping out of the exam hall knowing that I had finished my last ever exam in life. It was a wonderful moment. Of course, I had no idea that I was about to do four years of Bible college packed full of exams, but I didn't know that at the time. But um, you all know the feeling, don't you? When you finish your exam, there's a massive amount of relief. And we hate exams, don't we? I guess many of us probably have exam dreams at times in our lives. 
you know how the dream goes, it's a nightmare, you, you've got the wrong venue, the wrong day, you've come for the wrong exam, or you've got new pens or paper, you open the exam sheet and it's blank, and you can't find the questions or whatever it is. We often worry about being examined. And because we feel that way about exams, what Paul says next does not sound very loving. Look at verse five. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? It feels very uncomfortable, not very loving for Paul to put it so bluntly. And yet remember, his goal in this whole section is to build up the Corinthians like a father caring for his children. He loves them too much not to ask them this question. Examine yourselves. I know some people have a kind of disposition where when you're asked to look at yourselves in the mirror honestly, you feel crushed. You tend to see all the negatives. You're left in a spin. Paul's desire is not to make genuine Christians racked with worry. Remember, he's writing to the Corinthians who over many years have publicly and stubbornly refused to repent of, of major sins. And it's to that group that he says, examine yourselves. You see, the stakes are high. Paul wants the Corinthians to see for themselves that Christ Jesus does live in them. So what kind of exam does Paul set the Corinthians? What would it look like for them to discover that Christ is in them? Well, he doesn't say, but we can work it out. It's very different from the kind of exams that the world sets. The world examines us on our knowledge and our IQ. The world examines us on our um, skills and ability to cope under pressure and how much money we can make and how many friends we can keep at one time. Those are the kind of worldly exams that we all fear, but this exam is different. And from the context, I think it's clear that Paul is wanting the Corinthians to think about two exam questions. The first is this. Do you realize that to know Christ means to know his weakness as well as his power? Do you realize that to know Christ means to know his weakness as well as his power? Paul puts it perfectly in verse four. He says, likewise, we are weak in him, Christ, yet by God's power, we will live with him. We've seen this again and again through the series. The shape, the pattern of authentic Christian experience is always marked by weakness. And that is true because Christ himself establishes the pattern. Remember, he came into the world humbly and weakly to die on a cross, uh, hands nailed to a Roman cross in utter weakness and shame. And if he lived that way, then his apostle lives that way, and so do his people. Think of Paul and his weakness. He describes it for us, doesn't he, in terms of his, his beatings, his shipwrecks, his uh, lack of food, lack of sleep, his concerns about the Corinthians, all his hardships, his lack of popularity. To be a person who follows Christ is to be a person 
who signs up for weakness. And the Corinthians were so deeply confused over this point. The Corinthians thought that a follower of Christ should be marked by worldly power and wisdom, by crowds following you and popularity and an easy life. And I think that is why they were quarreling and fighting with each other because they, they couldn't agree on which of the super apostles was most impressive. And many today who profess the name of Christ seem to have little appetite or expectations for weakness in the Christian life. In their experiences, they expect to get the job that they go for. They expect their health to be strong and robust. In their Christian service, they expect it to be constantly fruitful and always rewarding. In their witness to Christ, they expect people to be convinced by what they're saying and to come to carol service invites. They are drawn to dynamic, popular leaders who can pull a crowd with their compelling speeches. The prosperity gospel is gripping many people in this country with the promise of your best life now. But the shape of Christian service and ministry is is weakness now, suffering now, and glory then, and in the present sustained by the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Corinthians realize that weakness is one crucial mark of authentic Christian living, then they'll realize that Paul is the real deal. That's verse six. But if they persist in thinking that the Christian life is all about worldly power and success, they'll write off Paul, and at the same time, they'll write off the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is huge for us here this morning. A key sign that we know Christ is that we have started to understand that it is okay to be weak. We exhaust ourselves running around trying to have unlimited physical energy, unlimited emotional capacity, all the answers to all the questions, the five-year plans all carefully worked out, trying to show everyone else that we are on, on top of life when the key all along is to be content with weakness. And so to examine ourselves and to discover a piece about being weak, Paul would say, you do know Christ. And you will find this exam question nowhere else in the world, for it is a gospel exam question. This is how Paul lived, verse 9. He says, We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. Strong, that is, because they have come to know Christ and strong in his strength. And for us Christians, we don't need to try to be powerful or together with all the answers. In fact, we're much more in step with Christ when we know our our weaknesses. We're much better placed to get alongside other Christians to build them up if we know that we are weak in Christ. And so Paul would say, do you realize that to know Christ means to know his weakness as well as his power? That's the first exam question. The second is this. Do you realize that to know Christ means to care about your sin? It means to care about your sin. 
We've seen it, haven't we? But the Corinthians appear to be unconcerned about their sin. Even after five years and, and multiple visits and letters, they were still publicly and persistently involved in the same areas of sin, sexual impurity, fighting, anger, jealousy, slander, pride. And it seems they just didn't even care. I imagine the super apostle was saying to them, this is the way to live, crack on. But a sign that we really do know the Lord Jesus Christ is that we have begun to become deeply troubled by our sin. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we've got beyond our sin. The Bible's very clear that on this side of glory, no Christian will be ever free from our sin. It's a, a lifelong battle. But what Paul is saying, I think, from the context is that a genuine Christian who knows Christ has begun to care about the presence of sin in our lives. But the Corinthians didn't. They were unmoved. They were blasé about their sinful lifestyle. And so Paul says to them, examine yourselves. It seems that they're very happy to examine Paul. Hmm. Is he a real apostle? I'm not sure. Maybe he is. Paul says, look, don't just look at me. Look at yourselves. Look at your own hearts. You're best placed to know in yourself how you view your own sin. Examine yourselves. I wonder if one of the reasons why we don't like to examine ourselves is because we're scared to discover what we will see when we do. And this is why the gospel is so wonderful, isn't it? Because it gives us what we need to look in the mirror without covering things up, to behold reality and to not be in despair. Because to know Christ is to be convicted of sin, but also convicted of his death on the cross for us. You see, if we think that the pass mark in our exams is to produce a perfect moral life, then we'll do our best to ignore our sin, to to bottle it up, hide it from ourselves and others, and we'll do our best to say, look, I'm passing the exam. But the cross of Christ says, no, you don't pass it that way. You pass it by trusting in the death of Christ and his, um, his blood shed for you. And so to know Christ's death is what we need to begin to examine our hearts accurately without fear. It's one reason why when we gather together as family every week, uh, we try to confess our sins. It's good for us to do it together as a family. We don't confess our sins and examine our hearts as we do so in order to feel rubbish about ourselves. Uh, We do it so that we are reminded of our ongoing need for Christ and his death in our place so that our hearts don't become complacent to our sin and that we think, oh, I can get into God's good books by my good performance. It's a good habit not just to confess our sins on a Sunday, but day by day on our own. I wonder when the last time is you, just, you took some good time to sit down and to think back over the previous 24 hours with an honest self-examination to see how you feel about your sin. The gospel helps us do it. We needn't fear what what we find. But for these Corinthians, there was no self-examination going on at all. And Paul has to say to them, 
is Christ really in you if you refuse to look at your own hearts? I hope he is, Paul would say. A loving exhortation about the present. Uh, These are stern words this morning. But there is a warm finish to Paul's letter. Look at verse 12. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Which roughly translates into our modern culture, greet each other with a firm handshake, preferably at arm's length. Just in case you're not sure about what happens after our meeting this morning, just to clarify. And then famously, he finishes with the words of the grace. Look at verse 14. He says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I think Paul does finish on a note of confidence with these Corinthians. And not because they are a model of maturity in Christ. Not because they're sorted. Not because they're even progressing as well as he wants them to. But rather because of God's grace that he knows has come to them. Uh, We don't quite know from this letter how the Corinthians responded to Paul's loving but stern warning to them, but uh, we have a good idea from Paul's other letter, well, another letter, Romans. In Romans 15, written after 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions towards the end that the church in Achaia, that is the Corinthians, um, did participate in the generous offering of money that was taken back to Jerusalem, which means that we know that when Paul does come on his third visit, The Corinthians do welcome him and they do give the gift that Paul wants them to give to send back to the churches. And so even though this is a stern moment, there's good evidence to say that the Corinthians took it on board. They did repent. Christ was in them and they welcomed Paul and the gospel he preached. And may God's grace be at work amongst us in the same way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great love that Paul had for these dear Corinthians, a love like a father has for his children, a love that was willing to speak up, even though it was hard and awkward. And Father, as we reflect on our own hearts, I pray once again that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, and please comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, please would your grace work in us as a church family that we would embrace weakness in your power and that we would be about that great battle against our sin, concerned by it, moved to live increasingly for Christ. And Father, please, by your grace, would you move us towards maturity in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.